0: and welcome to Homemade News. We're beaming live out of Chinatown, Los Angeles, California world. I'm your, one of your hosts, Shara. Planet Earth. <laughs> Planet Earth Universe. Um, I'm Shara. I'm Jen. Hi. Um, oh, can we get a round of applause? <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Thanks, built-in studio <laughs> audience. <laughs> Um so we have a really good show for you today. Um we are talking about Loretta Lynch. We are talking about um a gender
1: clothing which is the future of fashion
0: apparently. Jen will be telling us about this and we'll also be talking about um recycling um our political candidates cuz we're in Arctica. Oh no and our our main guest we are talking to Lily Simonson who went to Antarctica for three months and she was she's an artist and she was doing a lot of her work there with the National Science Foundation it was with their artists and uh, writers program so we have a good show for you today and so let's get started if you didn't know climate change is a problem a big problem Scientists say our recent bad East Coast winters are in part due to China's polluted air. In California, we're experiencing an unprecedented drought, and our hurricanes are only getting stronger and stronger. So we're having to come up with innovative ways to reduce, reuse, and recycle, from our desalination plants to our agricultural systems. We can even look to our political candidates for inspiration. Here's the story. The Democratic Party has always had a bit of a green thumb. Obama proposed the Clean Power Plan in 2014. That same year, he announced his agreement with China to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to 28% below 2005 levels. And now, the DNC is being even more eco-friendly. They're recycling presidential candidates.
1: I'm getting ready to do something, too. I'm running for president. Americans have fought their way back from tough economic times, but the deck is still stacked in favor of those at the top. Doesn't that sound familiar? I announced today that I'm forming a presidential
2: exploratory committee. I'm not just starting a campaign, though. I'm beginning a conversation with you, with America.
0: That's Hillary Clinton, and she's running for president. This is all part of the Democratic Party's plan to show that we don't have to throw something that's used away. And Republicans are noticing.
1: If I decide to run for office again, it will be based on what I believe, and it will be based on my record.
0: That's Jeb Bush. And while he hasn't officially announced his candidacy, it's only a matter of time before he puts his name in the race. It's really so heartwarming that Republicans won't let a plant like a Bush die. They just keep trying to preen that Bush name from HW to W to now Jeb. Way to be green, GOP! Presidential races have had a history of feeling like your neighborhood recycling bin. John Adams was the second president of the United States. John Quincy Adams was the sixth president of the United States. Teddy Roosevelt became president in 1901. His nephew was FDR. So let's continue the tradition of those three R's. Hillary talking the wage gap isn't so 2007, it's vintage. And what's old like Bush is new again. Let's celebrate our planet and elect an established candidate once again.
3: It's a magic number, yes it is, it's a magic number, because 2 times 3 is six, 3 times 6 is 18, and the 18th letter in the alphabet is R, yeah, we got 3 R's, we're gonna talk about today, we gotta learn to reduce, reuse, recycle, reduce, reuse, recycle, Reuse, recycle. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Well, if you're going to the market to buy some juice, you gotta bring your own bags and you learn to reduce your waste. We gotta learn to reduce. And if your brother or your sister's got some cool clothes, you can try them on before you buy some more of those reuse. We gotta learn to reuse. And if the first two hours don't work out, and if you gotta make some trash, well, don't throw it out. Recycle. Got to learn to recycle, got to learn to reduce, reuse, recycle, reduce, reuse, recycle, reduce, reuse, recycle, reduce, reuse, recycle. Because three, it's a magic number. Yes, it is. It's a magic. Number.
1: Selfridges, the posh London fashion giant, is kicking off a radical experiment. They're giving the rest of us a glimpse of the retail world to come. Whatever labels you love, whether that's Kmart or J.Crew, Topshop or Barneys, the first choice you have to make is the women's section or the men's section. But Selfridges is betting that that boring cultural binary is going out of season. That's why they've launched a gender-neutral shopping experience, without mannequins, called a gender. Throughout their brick and mortar flagship store, pop-up areas feature inclusive clothing and accessories for all colors on the gender rainbow. Their online shop has two models for each piece, so everyone can feel welcome buying a 270-pound sleeveless satin vest by Dries Van Noten. It's not really about designing clothes differently, What Selfridges is doing is more like gender-neutral marketing. The fashion industry has to stay one step ahead to survive, so it's actually surprising that it's taken so long for a big retailer to embrace this social change. I had a chance to speak with a fashion icon about what the Selfridges campaign really means for you and me.
4: Good evening, America. I'm Chloe Sevigny.
1: Actress Chloe Sevigny joins us on Homemade News. Obviously, the fashion world changes ahead of most of us. How do you see other areas responding to agender clothing, like, for example, religious communities? What will it look like when they start to catch
2: up?
0: Pleated palazzo pants by Kathy Pill, a throat buckle by Skin Graft, and patronizing chunk wedges by Nine West.
1: What are some other communities that you see as most behind the fashion industry in terms of responding to social change?
0: Lieutenant Governor's wives. Ghosts of the poor,
3: Benazir Bhutto, Jean Favreau, and hotel bedspreads.
1: The Selfridges' campaign is an important sign for global retailers, but how do you think we'll know when a shift is more widespread?
0: A Louis Vuitton binder stick.
1: What do you think Selfridges should say to any industry critics who think men's and women's departments should stay on their own floors?
3: Call up a good friend, like Gabby Hoffman, DJ Frankie Knuckles, or Charlotte Randling. Have a conversation about Fossbender, Irony, or Pruinza Schowler. Thank you, Miss Ebony. Sponsored by Acura, Prilosec, and Gogurt Squirts.
1: This has been Jen for the Homemade News Business Market Economy Report.
3: guitar. Jamming good with the Gilly and the spiders from Mars. They played it left hand but made it too far. Became the special man. Then we were Ziggy's band. Ziggy really sang. Screwed up eyes and screw down hairdo Like some cat from Japan He could lick on my smiling He could leave them to hide They came on so loaded man Well hung snow white ties diving us that we were voodoo the kids were just crass he was the mess with god-given ass he took it all too far but boy could he play guitar
1: Today we are lucky because we get to do one of our favorite segments, stale bread, two-week-old news. Important stuff that's fallen off page one, but we're still wondering what's happening there. U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder resigned back in September and the White House quickly moved to nominate a replacement, Loretta Lynch. Today marks 162 days that her confirmation has been stuck in the Senate. President Obama is upset with Republicans who are refusing to confirm her. They won't budge until Democrats agree to pass a seemingly innocuous bill with a hidden anti-abortion measure inside. So far, everyone is losing. Loretta Lynch, President Obama, Republicans, and Democrats. Sometimes it feels like they've forgotten about the one person for whom this decision matters most. That would be Eric Holder, who has been stuck being U.S. Attorney General against his will. Marooned in his office for 162 days, with no end in sight. Here's our exclusive homemade news interview with hostage Eric Holder. Hello? What can I do for you? Hi, Eric Holder. Thanks for joining us. That must be your captor, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Wake up. You're being interviewed now. Oh, sorry. That's okay. You've been held hostage at work for 162 days, trying to quit, but they won't let you. You have a huge job with lots of responsibility, even though you don't even want it anymore. How are you keeping your head above water? I
3: can't believe you. At one o'clock in the morning, I'm not a watchdog. What am I doing here? What happened to the real watchdog? What is the purpose of my
1: Things sound really bad over there. Dick Durbin, a Democratic senator from Illinois, spoke up recently. I don't know if you heard. He said that Senate Republicans need to stop what they're doing and confirm Loretta Lynch. Then they dragged him to the Senate bathroom and they flushed his head in the toilet.
2: Loretta Lynch, the first African-American woman nominated to be Attorney General, is asked to sit in the back of the bus when it comes to the Senate calendar. That is unfair. It's unjust.
1: I hope he's okay. Reports say that you have unlimited candy bars and a copy of War and Peace with you, so at least Republicans are playing fair. This has already been the longest confirmation holdup for Attorney General ever, so I bet you're almost done. Please be brave. Don't die.
3: I've earned some money, and I think I can make it. But this last job almost killed me. I didn't think that working could be so hard or so dangerous. But I shall persevere.
1: It sounds like the bullies are back, so I guess our interview is over now. Thanks for being on the show. Meanwhile, the nation waits to find out what will happen to Loretta Lynch. If Republicans don't relax and confirm her by May 1st, the Senate will be forced into an emergency session where they will select Eric Holder's replacement using musical chairs measures. This has been Jen for the Homemade News Stale Bread Report. Hey, stop time for musical chairs. Come on, let's go. Set up the chairs now.
3: You can't be standing there If you want to be a winner at musical chair Now we take away a chair while you're running around Don't let the kid in front of you get you down Just listen to the rhythm now Don't miss a beat Cause you don't want to be the only one without a seat. Cause when the music stops You can't be standing there You can't be standing there if you want to be a winner. you got to be a winner if you want to be a winner at Musical Chairs. Yeah!
0: Hello and welcome back to Homemade News. I'm one of your hosts. Shara, I'm Jen. It was Hi. indescribably
1: sad to to talk to Eric Holder that way.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. I'm I'm just amazed
1: that you got such access and he was willing to speak with you. I think he's having he's at the point of of like real honesty that you usually can't get to with a politician because he's just been so isolated. And he probably just wants to talk to someone. Yeah, Yeah.
2: he's feeling really vulnerable.
0: Yeah, yeah. So did he say anything interesting to you that didn't make it in the
1: interview? Um, Yeah, there was a lot of stuff that he added. Um, He's been photobombing, you know, anyone who like comes to visit the building, you know, on tours and stuff. Any any tourists he'll he'll pose with anyone now? Okay. He has a lot of time. Okay. Yeah. Well, you
0: know, we wish Eric Holder the best of luck and hope he he gets out and can actually retire soon. Yeah. Begin his life new life. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Begin his life. Um So, speaking of potentially feeling isolated, nice segue there. Um, We actually spoke to Lily Simonson, who is an artist, and she's actually known for depicting a lot of marine life. Um, And, basically her art led to her um, applying for the National Science Foundation's artist and writers program in Antarctica where she lived for three months and so we got to talk to her um, one thing that one thing that is really interesting and we kind of start with the interview this way was that she basically, Started painting what's called a yeti crab, which is this crab that no one even knew existed. And she was one of the first people to see it. And then like, once she started talking, she basically wanted to see it. And she went to Paris to go see it and paint it. And then all of these scientists wanted to become friends with her because they're like, oh, well, you should paint what I've discovered. And then she just kind of integrated herself into this whole marine life biologist community and that's what got her to Antarctica so she she's found a really cool niche for herself And you guys did some real talk yeah yeah you'll hear it she um she talked about what it's like to to date in Antarctica while being in an open date relationship humans. yeah yeah no not not penguins as good as they look in a tuxedo Ha ha. Um, so that was elegant. Thank you. Okay, so let's get started. Yeah, let's listen.
2: What happened was um, so the first Yeti crab species was discovered in two thousand six, or that's when the discovery was announced. Since then, they've discovered a few other species, and. Um, I think in 2010 I heard about another species getting discovered and this one was discovered by Andrew Thurber, who at the time was a grad student at Scripps, which is in San Diego, and I live in LA. I contacted Andrew Thurber um, about coming to his lab and looking at his specimens of the yeti crab, so I did that and I started working with him. and his advisor. And Andrew, at a certain point, said, you know, I know you're interested in the Yeti crab, but my main focus is these polychaete worms, which are furry worms um, in Antarctica. So he also, because he had been working there for a few years, he knew about this program that the National Science Foundation has, where... Uh, the NSF sends almost all just researchers and, and research support to these three different bases in Antarctica. But in addition to sending scientists, they have a program where they send a couple, one or two artists or writers every year. So I decided I wanted to apply for that program and I wanted to dive there, um, but I had never scuba dove before. So obviously to dive under six feet of sea ice through a hole, you need a lot of experience. So it was a years long process. I think, you know, I first learned about it in 2010 or 2011, and I started learning to scuba dive and getting a lot of, you know, practice experience in under the water. And then eventually I did apply for the artist and writer program. What was your actual proposal? What was your actual vision? My proposal was to connect um, the biology of the sea life to um, the way it, it was sort of, the idea was to think about water in Antarctica. And my idea or my vision was to paint that continuum. So I went diving like twice a day, every day for a month when I was living on station.
0: You're somewhere where not many
2: people can say that they've been. Yeah, exactly. I I don't know what the number is, but I think it's just a couple dozen people, maybe more, maybe a few dozen that have dove there over the years. So the water there is minus two Celsius. It's about 28 degrees Fahrenheit because salt water freezes at a lower temperature. and there's a big drill that they use to drill a, a hole in the sea ice. That's, the hole is maybe four feet wide. And as I mentioned, the sea ice is six feet thick. And you wear a dry suit. So it's kind of like an astronaut suit. So no water is meant to get in unless you get a leak, which did happen to me a couple times. <laughs> um, and you wear these big dry gloves that look like lobster claws. So you get in, you go through the ice, and it's very disorienting when you first get in because you're just surrounded by white ice. And then you drop below it and you can see, it feels like you can see forever. Um, Something really special about diving there is because there's so much darkness during the winter, um, nothing grows in the water column. So when we were diving, which was in October and November, that's springtime in Antarctica because it's in the Southern Hemisphere. So there's just, the light is just beginning. So you're just coming out of a long season of darkness. And so the water is incredibly clear. You can see like 600 to 1,000 feet. And the best visibility elsewhere in the world is like 100 feet. So it's it's incredible. Um, And... The island that the station is on, Ross Island, is volcanic and, and the seafloor drops off really steeply. So it's this dramatic um, vista where you get to see, you know, you can look down hundreds of feet and see the seafloor and see what's on it. And it, uh, it's the, the volcanic rock is really dark, but then these animals stand out really starkly. So it's just covered in nudibranchs, which are like a sea slug and uh, sea sea stars and urchins and anemones and huge sponges. Um, There's this phenomenon of giganticism where because there's more oxygen in the water, uh, the animals grow bigger than they would in temperate waters. So we would encounter sponges that were like three times my size. They're octopi, they're huge jellies. And it's, yeah, it's really gorgeous. And the ice has these sort of platelet formations. So it looks like feathers, like the underside of the sea ice looks feathery. It's really beautiful. And it glows, I mean, it's very luminous. Wow. So, I mean, were you taking photos? What were you doing? Yeah, I took photos and video. And then I had a studio on the research base. And um, we were diving. I helped with science projects um, because that's part of what I do now. Like, I like embedding in the research itself and helping with the field work because I think it enriches uh, the art ultimately and then helps the art serve the science a little better too if I understand what it is I'm painting. So, I helped uh, researchers collect like dragonfish, um, helped them collect uh, water samples and data about temperature and acidification. Um, And then at the same time, I got to just collect my own specimens of, like if I saw an organism that looked interesting, I would take it and put it in my little mesh bag. And then at the end of the dive, we'd go back to the station and I would put it in an aquarium in the lab and then I could use it as a model when I was painting in my studio. So I used a combination of painting from memory and painting from the video footage and then painting from those uh, critters that I collected.
0: Can you also describe some of the challenges you
2: faced as an artist on Antarctica? It's obviously challenging to do um, in situ or plein air painting when you're scuba diving. And when I dive around here, I actually make drawings on a slate, but I wasn't, so you can, you can use a pencil and sort of a roughed up slate and make sketches underwater.
0: Is that like a canvas that you can use underwater?
2: Sort of, it's really just a piece of plastic, but yeah, you can use it underwater. And um, so I make a lot of sketches when I dive here. And I had intended to do that down there, but of course, because we have to use these massive dry gloves, I wasn't able to. So that was one challenge. I couldn't do my underwater drawing thing. Um, And then, uh, so the visibility is really, really special in early spring. Then as the light increases moving into summer, there is plankton that begins to grow. And there's a big plankton bloom that happens in early December. And usually, almost overnight, the visibility drops around the second week of December from like 600 or 1,000 feet to like 10 feet, almost overnight. So the diving season is during this very specific time. Um, And then after the diving wrapped up, I went up to Mount Erebus, which is the southernmost active volcano in the world and I camped at the top of Erebus Um, and the average temperature is minus 20 Celsius. It was colder when I was there. That's the average summer temperature. Um, It was colder than that when I was there and my paints like immediately froze. So I wasn't able to make any plein air paintings but I did make a lot of drawings. Um, But even my drawings, it's so windy and so cold that my drawings were a little like, were pretty shaky. (laughs) I think you also mentioned when we talked that it was so windy there too. Yeah, uh, in the dry valleys, it wasn't so much cold that kept me from painting. I mean, it's a little below freezing, but my paints did okay there. Um, It was more the wind. Uh, The dry valleys are one of the windiest places on the planet. And that's part of why there's no ice on the ground. Um, or snow, I would mix up a paint color and I'd have to suddenly protect it because the wind would sort of sweep it off the palette. Um, And we're very conscious of the environmental impact. So um, allowing paint to stay on the ground or like touch anything, touch any of the rocks is like a big no-no, so I had to be very cautious. So um, it was much more practical to make drawings in the field. Were scientists showing you, okay,
0: this is what it used to be like, this is what it is now, like, could you, did you notice changes?
2: Um, One of the features that was being studied um, in the dry valleys was this exposed ice cliff in a valley called Garwood Valley, and Joe Levy was observing the way it was changing very, very rapidly, and it's... um, The Arctic is changing really fast. The Antarctic, relative to the Arctic, is changing rather slowly. But there will be major changes when the planet warms. And this specific area, Garwood Valley, has um, it's not warming, but there is increased sunlight. And that increased sunlight is creating a lot of melt. So I actually did observe, like, You know, um, Garwood two years ago versus the Garwood I saw this season is completely different. It's changed a lot. um, And that is a harbinger of what the rest of the continent will look like when the temperatures rise throughout. You were with your boyfriend at the time, right? Or no? Yeah. What was that
0: Like how to tell him that that was something that in your family, that that was something that you wanted to do.
2: Yeah, it definitely wasn't easy on my relationship to be gone that long. Um, But I think that I had applied. It's a very long process. So I applied for the artist and writer program in mm, April of 2013. And then my boyfriend and I got together in September of that year. So when our relationship started, he knew that I had applied for this Antarctica thing and that I was really hoping to go. And then I found out in December of 2013 that I had gotten it, but I didn't go until a year later. So we had a long time to mentally prepare for that trip.
0: What, like, what were some of those conversations like?
2: Well, my boyfriend was really nervous about me diving. He does a lot of backpacking in the mountains and stuff. So he's been near hypothermic before. Um, so he was actually more expressive of his concern. And then in terms of my boyfriend, I think uh, we were long distance throughout our relationship. I lived in LA and he lived in Berkeley. And because of that, we've often like gone in phases of being not exclusive. So that was the phase we were in when I was in Antarctica, which I think made it easier too. So I dated people <laughs> in Antarctica. And he dated people in Berkeley. You did? What was that like? Um, it's really funny, like um, especially being on station, uh, and most people who live there are science support and they have to stay the whole summer, which is October to February. So therefore, they are there for a long time. Um, and so there are a lot of, there's a really fun like social scene. They have to make it fun because everybody's stuck there for so long. So there are like three bars um, and there's a whole range of people. So it's really fun. Uh, and yeah, dating there is kind of funny because it's like seventy percent male. Um, so yeah, and and because everybody's like living in the same place and eating in the same place, like relationships get really intense really quickly.
0: So how did you meet, um, y- you know, like your Antarctica lover,
2: <laughs> lovers? I mean, it's just hard to not meet people. Uh, Like I dated some people that were doing research and I met them, I think everybody I met, I met on station. So yeah, I dated a couple people that were doing research. I dated a couple people that were like science support. Um, And I mean, for me, it was just sort of fun because like I was committed to my boyfriend and um, yeah. So it was, it was more more casual, I guess, yeah. If you're casually hooking up with someone,
0: <laughs> like do you have to remove 25 million different layers?
2: Yeah, um, I only, for definitely hooking up with someone in the field is more difficult, although people do it. I only did it once and it, it didn't go well. We were both just like, we're so cold, we're so cold. <laughs> So, yeah, that didn't work out. <laughs> we were both just like shivering. And then finally I was like, I'm going to my own tent. That is so funny. And then what about
0: the dorm? My
2: roommate um, at McMurdo was dating this guy and she set me up with his roommate. And I think that they were kind of hoping that they would get more privacy and we could switch off rooms. The only problem was that we were sort of against, contrary to gender stereotypes, my roommate and I, our room was just like super messy. And we didn't do any, even though we were both there most of the season, we didn't do any nesting. It just looked like a prison cell. And their room was like really nice. They had all these decorations. It was like very comfortable. They had a couch, so like we both were always trying to go to the the guy's room. <laughs> so it kind of didn't work as well as I think my roommate and her boyfriend hoped to set me up with that guy. Um, and then I also got to uh, I also dated this guy who was a helicopter pilot. Um, and helicopter pilots, because they have such an intense job, they get their own room. So that was easier. Um, and yeah, sometimes, yeah. So that you just sort of have, uh, it's sort of like being a college freshman again. It's pretty funny.
0: Yeah. And like, and also just being in this bubble, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's it, it's like college in that, like, all your needs are met. You eat in this cafeteria, you're just studying or whatever it is you're supposed to be doing. Yeah.
0: And you don't really have money.
2: Yeah, I know when I got back, I had to reacclimate. Um I mean, you do alcohol costs money. But beyond that, um, you don't pay for food or anything like that. Yeah. So I kind of forgot about currency. The place that can seem so solitary
0: is actually more social than maybe being in your studio here in L.A.
2: Totally, yeah. You wouldn't think that you would go to Antarctica for the people, but um, (laughs) I kind of, I mean, I really miss it, and I would go back, and part of that is because the people you meet there are so awesome. I mean, it's a self-selecting group of either really brilliant scientists that um, wanna go to the ends of the earth to investigate ideas. And then the people that work there are people that have an adventurous spirit and just think that going to Antarctica is an exciting you know, place to be. So it's a, it's a great group of people, really interesting group. Do you feel like you're sort of following this
0: legacy of, of, you know, explorers who also draw and paint and do art. I mean, like, you know, Charles Darwin and all these other explorers and scientists.
2: Yeah, I think about that legacy a lot of scientists as artists or expedition artists. And um, it's a great lineage that I really admired. And I actually learned to draw from copying, like, bird books My dad is a birder and I would get his birding field guides and Audubon books and um, draw those birds. And so I've always been influenced by that type of natural illustration. Um, And when I started painting the Yeti crab, right as it had been discovered, I thought about that even more, about how Audubon and Durer and, Henslow and Darwin, like they were documenting newly discovered organisms. And right now the deep sea and Antarctica, they're both underexplored. And we're constantly discovering new phenomena and new organisms. And so I'm that makes me feel very close to that lineage where I'm painting things as they're discovered. Um, Although now we have digital photography, which does a wonderful job of capturing, like, newly discovered organisms. So digital photography sort of has supplanted, like, natural illustration. But at the same time, as a painter, I can still participate in that and add, um, like, another dimension to it.
0: And we're back. Welcome to Homemade News. I'm Shara. I'm Jen. Hi. Oh. And uh, <laughs> do we need like a laugh track? Yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, it was really interesting talking to Lily. Um. It was weird because, like, I I thought that what she was doing was so interesting. Um. But I think the most fascinating thing that I came away with that interview was when she was talking about um like dating in Antarctica I was just I, and it was weird because I didn't want to just focus on that because I felt like it was almost insulting to reduce her experience to that you but to it picks <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah I asked her for those um, you know just to really understand her world yeah Um But it was it's also just really interesting because she talks about it basically that I mean, it could be considered such an isolating place. And then she says, but no, like you're really getting some of the most interesting people. And there is a really tight knit community. And because you're forced to be together in this small space, you're you form intense relationships really fast. Like it sounds almost like really cold summer camp for adults. Okay, let's go. Let's go. Let's do it. Yeah. I'm okay. Ready? Okay. Bye, guys. <laughs> We're going to Antarctica.
1: <laughs> Drop the mic. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um. So, I mean, basically, actually, do you guys want to introduce yourselves? It's so, Breaking news. Yeah. No, there's okay. Come on oh, over. You be here. I'll be there. Oh. Hi everyone. I'm Lori. Hi Lori. Um. Welcome to our show. Thank you. <laughs> so you have had an interesting couple of years. Um, Laurie, <laughs> so, yeah. Lori works at ET and has kind of, I feel like you've had, you've seen the whole gamut of the entertainment experience, right? Like going from producer to
4: actually interviewer. Right yeah i've I've been through a lot of different departments there it's lots of shifting and movement yeah
0: Yeah. so um one thing that you talked about with us and we're going to basically be asking you to name drop but you've you've had some interesting interviews of people who you know i I guess it's just the hollywood experience of people who are really nice and then some people who are kind of shitty
4: yes and it's sad when it's people that you looked up to and who you were very excited for, and then they turned out to not be very nice human beings. Yeah. But um, I don't know if you want me to go and wait.
1: But also, yeah. it's also like the nature of your job that um, you end up interviewing people in a way you don't want to.
4: Yes, it which is, is really interesting. Much. It's oh, a really right. cool contradiction. Yes, it's um, entertainment news. You're you're constantly you have to you have to turn an interview into something that it doesn't seem like at first i guess so it's like if you're on a red carpet for someone who's promoting a movie but then news breaks about for example paul walker's death you and then this person worked with them like years ago you're like oh hey congratulations on your big night by the way how do you feel about paul walker's death and it's just obviously you know the answer they're going to say but they want that soundbite and it's very very uncomfortable for everyone involved because they know like kind of they're like ugh it's just, like, it's a, it's a weird thing to comment on. But, of course, you're going to comment on it, you know?
0: Well, and then there are also, I mean, that's a more extreme example, but then there are also the questions that you have to ask that you just don't want to ask because they seem more boring, right? Like, I mean, or one thing that you mentioned was, like, presidential candidates or something, right? Was it with Julia Louis-Dreyfus? Uh, oh, yes.
4: Uh, the, it was for planes, and it was what? It oh, was oh, president. it was planes. It wasn't it presidential. It was to be planes. They were doing a junket, and it was really, it was odd because I didn't think it fit. But it was during the Anthony Weiner scandal. Okay, that's right. and um, so that wasn't. Those are called agenda questions. So it means like without you don't even have to ask it, but you like it goes without saying you have to ask those. Like those are a given. So it's like, when you see agenda questions, you're like, oh, okay. But then I said, okay, this is a plains drug. It's going to be like Dane Cook and, I don't know, I forgot like other random people. And then, but Julia Louis-Dreyfus and someone was like, oh yeah, well, she's in Veep. So it could make sense. And so I ended up having to ask her and she was not happy about that. Her like publicist stepped in and like, they called my office and they were like, you know, your field producer just asked this question. And I guess the produ like the Disney producer, kind of threw me under the bus because she was the one who told me to ask it. But then when they called her, she was like, "Oh my God, I can't believe she did that!" Like we <laughs> didn't tell her to do that. So they thought I went rogue, but I didn't. <laughs>
1: I have to know what she thinks about so me. Weird. <laughs> <laughs>
4: yeah. Of course, that's so me. But uh, yeah, so that was that was sad. And then I saw her a couple months later because she was promoting um, that movie she did with. James Gandolfini, which was his last movie, but I can't. Uh, enough said. Enough said. Yes. So it was in Toronto, and it was a few months after, and it's like, oh God, I hope she doesn't remember, but she didn't. She was much she's pleasant because I didn't have any scary agenda questions, so at least there was that.
0: Yeah. Is that hard when you feel like you're, like you're just, it's not, you're almost a mouthpiece when you're not really like saying what you want to say.
4: Yeah, it is hard because. You have, like, like, of course you don't want to ask these questions. And, I, and they, like, you're the face of it, so they get mad at you. But then you're like, no, I'm just the messenger. <laughs> like, I don't, don't, you know, shoot me down. So, yeah, it is hard. And it, that was definitely a stressful aspect of going out in the field because it's like you have to be on top of these breaking news and you have to, like, know if there's a connection with people. Like, I remember when the whole Bill Cosby thing was blowing up. There was an event. I didn't go out for it, thank God. Um, but I just remember like the field producers who were going to that event, like they had to ask every single person who were like friends with Bill Cosby because they were like, comedians. It' was just horrible because what do you expect them to say? Like,, mm-hmm. it's really, people's reactions are really funny too, because they'll just like some people will get mad and be like, "No, like I'm not here to talk about that and they'll walk away, and then some people just kind of go like, mm-hmm and walk away, or they'll just wait for their publicist to jump in. It's...
0: I feel like I just
4: wouldn't want to do the red carpet. Junkets aren't great. I mean, the sit-down ones, those aren't very fun either because it's, like, a lot of manipulation, like... So you either get four or eight minutes for a junket, and so you have to, like, obviously ask them about the film because that's what you're there for, but then, like, you have to just kind of map out how you want the conversation to go. So let's say, I, like, Blake Lively recently, she has that Adeline movie coming out. And, yeah. But that's, like, yeah, that's just an opportunity to sit down with her, but people want to know about, like, her baby. And, like, she's very private, so she doesn't want to talk about that. So it's just, like, you have to weave it in a way where it's, like, yeah, so then in this movie this and that, and, you know, but you just had a baby, so, like, why don't you tell us about that? Like, it's it's very... Well,
0: and that must be, like, I feel like that's hard, too, where, I mean, firstly, people are, like, a lot of women in Hollywood complain about, well, why why are you asking me about juggling being a mom with, you know, the working actress thing? Mm -hmm. I mean, does that, is that frustrating that you feel like you have to ask that, too?
4: Yes, it's very frustrating, and, you know, it's cool that you bring that up, because um, there was, like, a very big social media movement during Oscars about, like, ask her questions that matter and a lot of celebrities were weighing in like don't ask like who are you wearing or like you look great or are you
0: oh yeah I saw that there was like that nail cam or something where yeah. you, they have to show their hands which is so bizarre that it's come down to that and they have to almost like walk their fingers like it's the runway which it's is true. really silly and that some celebrities were like oh you want my finger like here
4: uh, <laughs> yeah that was awesome I think it was Elizabeth the chick from Mad Men. Moss? Like, yes, like yeah, Moss did that. It was awesome. And then like I think um, Kate Blanchett got mad at a camera for like doing the thing where they pan up, like they show the bottom and then like and she's like, What are you doing? I bet you don't do that for men. So there was like a really big move like people were really speaking out about that and I remember there was a big discussion at work. I hope I don't get in trouble for talking about this. But there's like No one's long- listening. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> there's this like long email chain about it like all like the talent and the EP talent is what we call our correspondence where like and the EPs like and the producers were all weighing in about how it's kind of hypocritical that these um like celebrities were weighing in on this because a lot of times they're paid to wear these designers and so that they have to they're like contractually obligated to say who they're wearing so it's like you know it's like an advertisement kind of So, it's like, okay, you're saying, ask us things that matter more, but then, like, at the same time, you're getting paid to wear wear this stuff. Like, this is part of your job. Right. It's it's, it's very interesting, because it's like, they're a part of the problem.
0: Right. Right. But then they probably want to show that they're, they're speaking out, and they think differently, and whatever. Yep. Um... Okay. Well, we actually should be wrapping it up.
4: <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> but um, you'll you'll be back on our show, and yes, I hope so. Yeah, it was really fun, and in t- yeah, so in two weeks we have a good show for you. Um, we are going to have the um, Democratic Chair of the North Dakota. Democratic Party on the show, so Kelsey, Kelsey Overson. So we're really excited to have her. And oh, why are you laughing? Oh, okay, applause. Um, yeah. So thanks to our other guests. Just very silent. <laughs> the silent. took them away. And um, yeah. So tune in in two weeks and talk soon. Bye.